This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. With summer coming up, I'm already dreading not only the traffic on the roads, but also the increased cost of groceries and the fact that my children eat all day long. You know, we all have stressors. Some are big and some are small, like an increased grocery bill. But therapy is a safe place to actually get these stressors off your chest and to figure out how you can actually work through them. There are many benefits to therapy for people from all walks of life. It's helpful to learn positive coping skills so you don't freak out about that grocery bill and how to set boundaries. Therapy can empower you to be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's convenient, flexible, and entirely online. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Moore today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash Russell Moore. This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Welcome to a special bonus episode of The Russell Moore Show, a bonus episode that actually came about through a text message that I kept thinking about all week long, and now is something that you can see, which is an article in The Atlantic by my friend Pete Wayner on the series The Chosen and about how surprised he was by by that series, The Chosen. And the, the text message I was talking about was Pete texted me as he was working on it and said, what do you think about The Chosen? And I sent back what I had written a few years ago in my newsletter. I don't usually respond to text messages from Pete with long excerpts of newsletter, <laughs> but I did this time because so many people have asked me about this with The Chosen. And what I said was, I've never seen The Chosen, but that's not because I have some moral or theological objection to it. It's because of my own imaginative weakness. It's the same reason why my 12-year-old watched the Lord of the Rings movies the other day, but I did not because the Lord of the Rings books have meant so much to me that I know I will be seeing Frodo and Sam as these actors for the rest of my life. And I just don't want to give that up. And I, I really don't want to do that with, with Jesus. So I haven't seen The Chosen, but I was fascinated by Pete's article because he really gets at something that I think is important at this moment. And so, Pete Wayner, thanks for being with us to talk about The Chosen today. 
It's great to be on with you, Russell. I'm a huge fan of yours. Always a delight to be on the podcast. Well, likewise. You know, you talk about in the book, I I laughed out loud when I read your description of the way that Jesus is usually portrayed. (laughs) In these, in these movies and films, and that you were surprised by this one. I was surprised by it. Yeah, what was so interesting in, in the text exchange we had is that what you explained resonated so much with me because I was exactly where, where you were. You know, my Christian journey begins in my late teens and early, early 20s. And the movie that I recall most was Jesus of Nazareth, which was a 1977 movie. And the actor was Robert Powell. And, but that was not the only one I had seen versions of. And what struck me about the characters who had played Jesus was several things. One is they seemed to me to have low blood sugar. I mean, they seemed <laughs> kind of lethargic. And, and at the same time, kind of otherworldly and remote mm-hmm. and not relatable. And so I decided at that point that I didn't want to see any more cinematic portrayals of Jesus for exactly the reason that you said. I felt like there's no actor that's going to be able to represent Jesus remotely accurately. And when I conceived of Jesus, I didn't want to have an actor in mind. I wanted to try and see who Jesus was through my own, you know, studies of the scripture and, and, and insights that one gets through the through the Holy Spirit and and life's journeys and how you conceive of this. So I had completely stayed away from from any of them. And, and my wife Cindy, who knows me best, loves me most. She knew about that, but she had been involved in a book club in 2020 during the pandemic, and they went through episode by episode, watching The Chosen. This is season one, and discussing it. And so she came to me and and said, you know, I think you would like this series. And the only thing she asked is she said, just try it for two or three episodes. So you get a sense of what's unfolding and then see if you like it or not. But she thought I would like it. And, and I did, I came not only to like it, but really to love it for a variety of reasons we can talk about, but it became important to me, not just because I liked it artistically, but actually in my faith, faith journey. You talk about in your Atlantic piece about the the personality that's depicted, and and of course we know this is not this isn't a word for word thought for thought representation of the Gospels. A lot of artistic license here, and you talk about that in the in the article. But that there's a there's there's a unique mix of personality here in this figure of Jesus in the show. What did you notice there? Yeah, I think I think Jonathan Rumi does does a fantastic job. It's a very humanizing figure, and he has this way of he carries himself in a very dignified way. But the portrayal of Jesus in the Chosen is somebody who is who laughs and who smiles, who feels pain. His interaction with some of the characters are really gripping and moving. You know, for people who have seen it, for example, when he embraces Mary Magdalene. This is, I think, in, in, in the first or second season, when he, tu- when he touches the leper and heals the leper, the woman at the well. And you see these interactions, which when they stay true to what the scripture says, because there are backstories which are not in scripture, but when these are actual scriptural accounts, they're true to them. 
but people feel seen by, by Jesus. He shows gentleness, he shows kindness, he shows anger. And there's a kind of uh, easygoing warmth to him, mm. times where he's weary. So it's that kaleidoscope of emotions, which are true to what the gospel portrays about Jesus. This episode is brought to you by Preaching Today. Are you tired of chasing down quality sermon illustrations? Need fresh ideas for helping your message connect? Each week, Preaching Today adds fresh content to our database of over 14,000 editor-screened illustrations. Quickly find the right story that will bring your message to life and help your people move closer to God. Get started today at preachingtoday.com. One of the most astounding things to me every time that I read Mark 1 and the parallel passages of it is when Jesus says to James and John, follow me, and they put down their nets and they follow him. And to imagine that in a first century Galilean world where what one is doing in, in laying down those nets is giving up essentially a, a business, an inheritance that's been handed down from generation to generation and which one is expected to hand down to the next generation, throwing that away to follow him it would have been astounding to somebody hearing these, these, uh, these documents, these gospels for the first time. That's a great story. I wonder, what, what do you think, based on the gospel accounts, what did they see or what were they reacting to that would create in them the, the disposition to give all of that up. How, how do you think about that, that section? I think part of it is not explainable in, in words very easily because it's, it's what, if you go on in Mark 1, he speaks with authority and not as one of the scribes, right? which I think includes that heart allegiance that you were talking about a mm -hmm. few minutes ago. And the other thing I think is, especially in John, the way that Jesus knows the people to whom he's speaking. So you have that, that wonderful account in, in uh, John 1 with Nathaniel, I saw you under the, under the tree. And there's just this immediate sense of, of you're the son of God, you're the king of Israel, because he, he knew him, an Israelite in whom there is no guile. And then later in John 4, he's speaking to the woman at the well. He knows her backstory. And what does she say about him? He, he told me everything I ever did. He, so yeah. I think there's a sense in which he knows, he knows the people themselves in a way that is unusual. They yeah. sort of, I mean, you think about John says that all the time. He didn't need anybody to tell him this because he knew what was in the heart. So yeah. it seems to me he knew human nature generically, of course, but he also knew the specific people involved. And that's yeah. what strikes me every time. Yeah, that's a deep point. It's a very important one. It, it is that capacity that Jesus clearly had to see people in ways that they probably themselves couldn't see themselves fully. Yeah. And I, I was, I've been struck almost as long as I've, you know, 
been a Christian reading the accounts on the flip side with the Pharisees, mm-hmm. who themselves were following the law. I mean, you can you can read what they say and think, well, that's not an unreasonable interpretation. Right. If they're if they're criticizing Jesus for breaking the Sabbath, he was. And there are verses in the Hebrew scriptures where you think, yeah, that's a that's a pretty good case they have. That really wasn't the issue, of course, because what Jesus was doing was saying, it's what's in your heart. And he knew what was in their heart. Mm-hmm. And he was calling that out. That was sort of part of the great human drama that was that was unfolding. So that capacity, as you said, to, to know human nature in general, but also to know people specifically, their story, their struggles. That's a very, very powerful thing for people like you and I who are followers of Jesus. That's a good point about the Pharisees. I, I wonder what your thoughts are about how the chosen portrays them, because one of the one of the obstacles people have, I think, to understanding the Gospels is the familiarity. Even people who right. aren't familiar with the Bible, but they're familiar with the concept of Pharisee. So you have this this immediate, okay, well, these are the bad guys in mind, which in order to understand what they're saying, you you have to, <laughs> you have to see the religious leaders the way you just spoke in yeah. order to actually get why this this all is so surprising. Does the does the chosen do that well? I think it does. I think it does. You know, one of the things that that I I would credit the chosen with doing is providing texture and nuance to to the context and to the times. So, for example. You know, you do learn things unless you're a scholar in this field. I think people in general w- would learn what it was like to be a Jew to live under Roman occupation. Now you mm. kind of get that when you when you read it in the in the in the Gospels, but this actually shows it in a way that's more visceral. So so that's that's helpful, and you just understand what kind of life was like. What 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 were the Romans trying to do? What was the struggle that that the, that the Jews had? In terms of the Pharisees themselves. Yeah, you. These are definitely devoted people. I mean, they've given their lives, at least intellectually. They 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 know the the scriptures. They study the Torah. They revere it, and you understand that that these are not people who 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 are who are winging it by mm-hmm. you know by by any means. They're serious, but I think what what it also captures is this issue of the human heart and the motivations. And you, you see in some of the encounters that Jesus had with some, not all, but with some of some of the religious leaders of his time, a kind of hardness of heart, a quickness to judge. And and what Jesus is trying to show in this is, and says it at some points explicitly in it from 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 scripture too, is it's about love and mercy. And so I think that they they capture that. It's also to it credit, the Chosen went out of its way to get a priest, an evangelical scholar, and a rabbi to consult on the script. One of the things that has emerged over the past uh, couple of weeks is a controversy about another depiction of Jesus, in a way. He gets this campaign, Super Bowl ads, and it's amazing how immediately there were people denouncing these ads as right-wing theocratic propaganda and people denouncing these ads as left-wing 
political propaganda <laughs> and, right. and at every at every point. Well, what did you think of the He Gets Us campaign ads? You know, I'm fine with it. I, I, I'd, I'd say I'm, I'm relatively sympathetic to it. I don't put a, a huge amount of hope or, or weight into what they can do. I think on the plus side is, I think for a variety of reasons, the impression that a lot of people have about Jesus has been so deformed and, mm-hmm. and, and so malformed, particularly the way in which Jesus has, has been utilized, I would say, within, within political and cultural contexts. He's become a sort of an instrument for a lot of people who have a, another agenda. And that's, to me, the most painful thing that's of, of this moment, which is the degree to which the witness to Jesus has been hurt by people who are or who purport to be followers of, of Jesus. You know, I was on a, a Zoom call at the end of last year with a group of people, and we were discussing the He Gets Us campaign. And there were two comments that were made that, uh, that I remember. One was by a person of the Christian faith, another was a person not, not a believer. And one person was talking about He Gets His campaign, and, and, and he said, you know, it, nobody has any problem with Jesus. It's his followers they hate. <laughs> and another person said, this was the, the person who's a non-believer, said, you know, I think they ought to rename the campaign from He Gets Us to We Betrayed Him. Mm. And I thought, wow, that that is exactly the problem. Mm-hmm. And it if the he gets his campaign offers you know a different angle of vision for some group of people to think you know he's not quite the caricature that we thought he was i think that's that's fine how about you what what what's your impression of it well you know i would have people say this is not evangelism. This is not depicting Christ crucified and raised from the dead. It's not uh, calling people to union with Christ. And my response was to say, that's not what, that's not what this campaign is intending to do. Yeah. What's it, what it's intending to do is to say, hey, have you thought about this figure of, of Jesus? Go, go look at this and, and see what you think. And in that sense, I think even the controversy may actually be for good. I mean, so so much of what's happening in the New Testament are people who are arguing about Jesus, what Jesus is doing over in the next uh, town, and some people saying, let's go see. I mean, I, yeah. I heard years and years and years ago a man who later became, I think, an Orthodox priest, but who had been a, a New Agey sort of kind of earth religion type uh, person who was assigned to read the gospel of Mark for a class in, in college. And he had to read the gospel of Mark and said that it was just, he said, I can't even explain what it was. It was just something about this figure of Jesus that seemed different to me than any other literary character. And that's what, that's what started him to sort of thinking yeah. all of this through. I think if somebody, if somebody does that and considers the the real Jesus, as you say, not what they've seen depicted from so many followers, some are going to some are going to say, "Not for me," and walk away. That's been happening since since the AD thirties. Yeah. Or some are going to say, "There's something compelling here," and yeah. maybe have a different life. That's that's all to the good in, in my view. 
E.Y. Mullins, the great uh, early 20th century Baptist uh, leader, I was just rereading something he had written about this, and he talks about how how we grow in coldness or contempt toward those things we've mastered. Huh. So you, you learn something and you become an expert in it and then you, you, you go forward. That, that actually what keeps you captivated are the things that, you, that are still surprising you. you know, and he gives all kinds of examples and he takes that to you know, a, a much greater level of saying, if what faith were, is a response to syllogisms and, okay, I see the logic here and now I have mastered that. I'm a master of divinity here. You would have a completely different experience than what it is to walk out following a voice. Yeah. And I think that's exactly right. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m. we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying and sirens go off and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But hey, all my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. I'd be curious, what was the relationship for you between intellect and sort of the, the the heart being won over. And did you feel as you were going through your journey of faith, I know it was it different than mine because obviously your upbringing was different, but did one, did you sense that one was the main driver initially? Was it more a moment and then intellect or was it sort of intellect and then moment or coincide? Moment and then intellect. It was, okay. it was, as a matter of fact, I think, Part of the issue for me was I grew up in a very revivalistic, evangelical sort of tradition, but I was having an experience with God that didn't seem to fit the paradigms there mm. of kind of a one time and then it's done. There was a real grappling. I think Beekner rescued me from a path that I could have gone if I hadn't read him first. Because oh. I read Beekner as, Beekner and Lewis were both big, big influences on me in, in high school. And then there came a point where I started to think, when you look at all the rot that we see in Bible Belt Christianity, and so a lot of the things that 
you know, you and I have been talking about over the last eight years right. have been present for a long time. And you're trying to figure out why is that the case? I think there was a moment where I thought, well, it's because the theology is so thin. Yeah. And if the theology were thicker and, and people were more rooted into the, the great tradition, that would take care of this. And I think Beekner and Lewis and Barry and those people kept me from going all the way down that path. Yeah. And what I've seen now is that the, the same kind of nominal cultural means to an end Christianity that I saw used with a very emotional kind of Christianity are even worse yeah. when they're a cerebral you know, a kind of Christianity with footnotes. It becomes yeah. even worse. That's a helpful thing. You know, it struck me recently, not, it wasn't particularly new inside. I'd say it was one that was underscored. Cindy and I saw, I think this must have been last year, one of the Max McLean, mm-hmm. one, one Man Plays on C.S. Lewis. And this one was focused, I forgot the title of it, but this one was focused on the period in which he had he had been a believer. And the thing that struck me with some degree of force after we watched that was Lewis, who, as you know, was just this preeminent intellect. Of course, mere Christianity was was part of that, but the whole series of things that he that he wrote, you know, pre-Narnia. But he was he was such a, a beautiful mind and such an organized and lucid mind and a wonderful writer. But what struck me was how, in the end, that isn't really what 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 carried him. It was mm-hmm. what he referred to as joy and imagination. And that that was really the Tolkien and Lewis sort of contribution and what they gave to 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 one another. And and it I thought even with this wonderful mind, that just didn't bring him there. He needed something else to act as a kind of a means through the portal. Mm-hmm. And that's the imagination and joy. And I actually think to some degree, without idealizing the chosen, I think that helped me because I found that my faith needs help and mm-hmm. I, it needs help through the aesthetics, mm-hmm. whether it's, for me, I would say preeminently music, but also art and, 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 and architecture and nature. Those things help, I think, bear witness in, in my view to, to God and, and to and to Christ. And so I, I, when I was reflecting, because my editor asked me when I was doing this essay for The Atlantic to reflect on how it's helped your faith, not just about, don't just tell about the series. Yeah. And it was an interesting question. It was one I had raised, but he underscored, think, think about that. And I did. And I think that was part of it. It was a notion of both humanizing Jesus in a way, but acting as a sort of a part of the aesthetic that helps move me along. It's not sufficient in and of itself. It's only a movie. Jonathan Rumi is the only an actor. But I felt like it pushed me a little bit more along that way. And, and I've needed, I've needed that help. I've needed the help of other people through the journey who have walked with me, particularly through moments of doubt and suffering and pain, but also joys. For me, uh, this is a very C.S. Lewis theme as well, which is some notion or intuition that we're part of a story. We're, we're, mm-hmm. we're protagonists in a great story, which is a beginning, a middle, and an end. But it's a story with an author. 
mm-hmm. and an author who who makes all things new again. Well, you know, I don't want to ruin a good conversation on good things with politics, but in our in our final moment, we we are going into another election year, another Trump Biden election year. I think we're all exhausted, numb in a lot of ways going into this. What's going to happen this year? Well, I think what's going to happen politically is it's going to be an extraordinarily divisive, angry and ugly year. I just think we have to accept that. We have to name it. We have to we have to prepare for it. So I think it, we're going to go into places that are dark and, and dangerous. So the question becomes, you know, what does the country writ large do about it? And what do we as people of faith, you know, do do about it? Individuals are going to have to work out themselves what that, you know, what what that means. I would say a couple of things as as I think about it. The the first, which I found helpful in terms of when I think about you know individually my position and the position of others I know, which is the belief or the conviction that what we're called to be is faithful, not necessarily successful. You can't always control success or not or not. That that depends on factors we can't control. We do have some measure of control over how faithful we are. So I think that's one thing. A second thing is, is as people of faith to hold a little more loosely, a little less tightly to the things of the world. So the anxiety level dissipates a little bit. Mm-hmm. Back to what I was saying earlier, which is we're, you know, we're part of a story that has that has an author. And I think that that's both true. And I think to some degree relieves the anxiety. A third thing I would say, I absolutely understand why people feel exhausted. And I, I actually think people of deep, impressive conscience and integrity probably feel the most exhausted. But I would say that the other side isn't exhausted and that that exhaustion is really not an option. The, this is a very, very consequential year. I think it's a very consequential moment. I think it is politically, and I think it is in terms of faith and the witness of faith and we don't really have that luxury of checking out or looking away. I don't think we, you know, we shouldn't perseverate on it. And, and our lives have other elements like the chosen mm. and, and family and joys. Those things shouldn't be neglected. On the other hand, this is as consequential a moment as there's been in the history of our country as I've been alive. And I think in mm. some respects, it's the most consequential moment arguably since the Civil War, but it ranks very high. And when there's that much at stake, people of goodwill and good conscience have to stay in in the the fight. And we have to have have convictions and deep convictions, but that has to be within a Christian context. And the means, you've been as articulate as anybody, which is, you know, Christianity is, is not about using any means possible to achieve the ends that we want. There is the what, what Eugene Peterson called the Jesus way, mm-hmm. not just the Jesus truth. And when people try and j- separate the Jesus way from the Jesus truth, you get into a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of trouble. Yeah. So I think that's where we are. I don't think in the short term, there's a particularly obvious escape hatch to the nature of our politics. I think we're just gonna have to endure this and get through it, try and be faithful to it and then wait for moments of opportunity, which I do think will arise. And the interesting thing is that it's it's 
you know, in an individual's life, like in the life of a nation, often there are inflection points that you never anticipate. You're ne never quite sure when they come, but when they come, you have to be prepared. Yeah. And I think that that's, that's the posture we probably need to need to take. I don't think there will be presidential debates this year, but uh, if there if there are, maybe some of you listeners should turn them off and watch The Chosen instead, just for one night. Amen. And come back. Pete Weiner, it is always great to talk to you. Thanks for being with us today. Great to be with you, Russell. Thanks. If you enjoy The Russell Moore Show, take a second to share this episode with a friend or leave a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. The Russell Moore Show is a production of Christianity Today. Executive producers are Eric Petrick, Russell Moore, and Mike Cosper. Host is Russell Moore. Produced by Ashley Hales. Associate producers are Abby Perry and Mackenzie Hill. Director of Operations for CT Media is Matt Stevens. Audio engineering provided by Dan Phelps. Video producer is Abby Egan. And the theme song for The Russell Moore Show is Dusty Delta Day by Lennon Hutton. This episode was brought to you in part by The Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.